You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are glad that you're here. So it's about 10 years ago that my, we went out to dinner as a family. And uh, at the time, my daughter Mia was four, Xander was almost two, and my wife was pregnant with our youngest daughter, Olivia. So we go to this restaurant, and the reason we went is we got a coupon in the mail. So we haven't been there in a while, so we're like, oh, it'll be fun, we'll go out to dinner, whatever. So we get to the end of our meal, and I'm sitting at the end of the table, and I have kind of my back towards the table because I'm looking for the server to see if he could refill my drink. <clears throat> and when out of the corner of my eye, my wife, my very pregnant wife at the time, jumps out of her chair and slams the table with, a, with her napkin and then just sits back down. And I turn around. I'm like, are you okay? And she says, there was a roach on the table. <clears throat> we haven't gotten to the worst of it yet. So wait for, hold on to your horror if you don't mind. She says, there's a roach on the table. So I said, well, give me the napkin. <clears throat> she hands me the napkin. I call the server over and I hand him the napkin. And I said, hey, can you bring the manager over? And so the manager comes over and apologizes and says the sentence that no one ever wants to hear. And so he apologizes and he says, yeah, I know it's a problem. And, and then he starts telling me a story about how the bay next door is um, unoccupied. And so then they've begun spraying not just the restaurant, but they're spraying next door. And he says, you know, the problem is, is that when you spray, it only makes them mad. I said, I'm pretty sure when you spray, it makes them dead. But <clears throat> so <clears throat> bad news, is, uh, good news is the meal was free, which... I mean, if all it took was a roach, uh, and, and that was fantastic. And, uh, but the bad news is, for the last 10 years, my wife has vetoed this restaurant. Now, my wife is a very easygoing person, but every time I've brought this restaurant, hey, what do you think? No. Uh, maybe we could swing? No. What if we ordered takeout? No. That place is dead to me. I mean, it is, there's, there's no movement on that. Now, I tell you that because you, you didn't realize this, or maybe you did, but um, you are, every time you visit a restaurant, it's an exercise in faith because you're, you've got faith that the place is clean. You've got faith that the people that are cooking the food are cooking it the right way. You've got faith that the employees have washed their hands before leaving the restroom because apparently that was an issue. That's why they had to put up a sign. But in reality, once again, whether you realize it or not, you can't go throughout your day without exhibiting some level of faith. You, 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 there was an exercise of faith when you walked in here today and you sat down. I mean, you looked at the chair and you made a calculated determination that the chair that you were going to sit in was going to be able to hold you. And so the moment before you just plopped down, uh, there, there was, once again, you exercised faith. And once again, depending on your height and weight and how your eating plan is going, some of us exercise more faith than others. But then that's, and that's how it works. But listen, and you know that when you hear this message, you're going to exercise faith. Whether you're going to believe what's being taught is true, 
And if you're going to apply it to your life and trust God when the next situation arises, there's, that's an exercise in faith. But there's another type of faith that you're exercising. You see, before that you decide to embrace the message and believe the verses and allow God to work in you, there's this other part of faith. And that is to embrace the truths of Christianity, you need to believe the truth of Christianity. And that singular truth being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and this is the truth that the Christian faith stands on. And it's the truth as to why the Apostle Paul spends an entire chapter, the by far the longest chapter in this book on the topic of the resurrection. Now, we are in the 20th message in a series in 1 Corinthians that's called uh, A Beautiful Mess. And the Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth. Um, now, if you're not aware where Corinth is, Corinth is a city in southern Greece, but he went there, he planted that church, spent a couple of years there before leaving and turning the church over to local leaders. Now, he left to plant more churches, and by, he got word shortly after that the church had been overrun with infighting and division. So he wrote the letter that we've been studying, if you can believe it, since February. And so we've been studying this together about how Paul is encouraging them that in a world that's very divided, we need a church that is united. And so if it, one of the things that we've been doing every week is giving you kind of the 35,000 foot view of the book so that you remember. But the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are corrective in nature. It's Paul dealing with all the problems that were happening in the church. And then there's a shift that happens in chapter 7 where Paul says, now concerning the questions that you wrote to me about. And so they had written Paul a letter saying, hey, we've got a bunch of questions about faith, theology, how all of this works. And what happens is, is that it, Paul starts systematically answering those questions through the rest of the book. In chapter 7, he talks about marriage and singleness for Christians. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, he deals with a very specific issue about can you eat something sacrificed to an idol? But more importantly, he talks about how to deal with disagreements that we might have with other believers without vilifying the other person. And Paul's answer is to, that for the more mature believer, you might have to curb your freedom for the sake of the believer that's weaker. And, he's, and, and who's the weaker believer? The weaker believer is the one he says is, that, is the one that is easily offended. And he tells the believer that's easily offended that they need to grow up in their faith. In chapter 11, he changes gears and talks about church services and how things ought operate in a way that honors God. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, he talks about spiritual gifts, how we all have spiritual gifts. We're all members of the body of Christ. And then in chapter 15, Paul introduces what is probably the most important topic of all and what many theologians have called the most important chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection of Jesus and talking about not just the, the topic of the resurrection, but making the argument that if the resurrection didn't happen, then nothing that we've talked about in 1 Corinthians matters, and really nothing in the New Testament that we talk about matters. But Paul lays in the last message that we looked at the foundation and explained that the gospel, the good news, that Jesus died, was buried, and that he rose again is now the foundation of our faith. And everything else that we enjoy, that we believe, that we trust is based on that reality. And he's going to explain to us why that matters and why it matters in your life. <laughs> that the resurrection is more than just a theological reality. It is the underpinning of everything we do in our lives. That the resurrection impacts how we love our spouse. 
It impacts how we raise our kids. It impacts how we look at the future and how we deal with problems and process guilt. The resurrection touches everything, whether we recognize it or not. And as we walk through this, you're going to see how the resurrection impacts everything that you do, whether you were conscious of it or not. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 12. And here's what we read. He says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been risen from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not yet risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified uh, testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. For if, in fact, the dead do not rise... For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not yet is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most pitiable. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to look at in relation to the resurrection. And the first is this, if you're a note taker, and that is that the resurrection is my current hope. It's my current hope. Now, we, get, we went through the first 11 verses last time we were together, but the thing that Paul now finally gets to the question that he's seeking to answer, and that is that there were some in Corinth that were saying that there was no resurrection. That means that there were people in Corinth who were saying, hey, being a Christian is great. Just realize that It's just for the course of your life. There's nothing else that happens after you die. You just live a good life and and that's it. In the Jewish community, there was was a sect that believed the same thing. They were called Sadducees. And the Sadducees were people that didn't believe in the resurrection um, of people. They just believed that you followed the God of Israel. You lived um, the best possible life, but that was it. That was the Sadducees and that's why they were sad, you see. So there you go. Feel free to use that. Feel free to use that at lunch later. But, and by the way, when Jesus had interaction with the Sadducees, he disagreed with them on this point continually. Now, but whether they were Sadducees who had become become Christians, and there were lots of Jewish leaders who had become Christians after the resurrection of Jesus, or whether there were just other people who were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead, Paul is confronting this. And by the way, this isn't just something from, you know, this problem that the church was dealing with 2,000 years ago. This uh, happens even to this day where there are people who try to remove the supernatural from Christianity and simply make Christianity some type of philosophy. In my, in my office upstairs, I have a Thomas Jefferson Bible. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was someone who believed the gospel stories but did not believe in the supernatural. So the Thomas Jefferson Bible cuts all the chapters and sections that have the supernatural in it. And then and when you get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it just says... And then um, they took Jesus and they put him in the tomb. And that's how the story ends. Like not the most uplifting Bible version you can decide to pick up. But listen, even today, um, if you listen to someone like Jordan Peterson, who is a brilliant guy, and I I read his book, uh, 12 Rules for Life, and I thought it was fantastic. But uh, Jordan Peterson is a brilliant guy who finds Christianity fascinating and approaches Christianity like a philosophy, 
But, but the problem is he can't figure out the resurrection. And he does his best to make Christianity a way of life that you can follow uh, without embracing the resurrection. And, there, and there's a problem with that. There's a couple in particular. First, Paul's argument is, if there is no resurrection for people, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead e- either. And if Jesus um, didn't rise, then your faith is empty. Why? Because our faith is built. Christianity is built on the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, just as important, um, the resurrection was Jesus's one claim. When people, when Jesus, what hinged, Jesus took his entire ministry and it hinged on this idea that he would rise from the dead. In fact, there's a few places where we could look, but I'll give you one in John chapter 2 where Jesus says, this is after Jesus cleansed the temple and caused a bit of a ruckus. He says it this way. <coughs> so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, When he had risen from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So, let me tell you what that means. Christianity is either of ultimate importance because of the resurrection, or it is of zero importance because there's no resurrection. What Christianity cannot be is moderately important. And once again, Paul decides, when he says, does Christianity matter? He's, he's, everything is scaled to whether the resurrection <coughs> took place. And this is the thing that, once again, that you've, you've got to decide or not. When I was in college, uh, I was getting my theology degree, um, but I took this job as a delivery guy at night, so I was delivering all over the place. So I had this delivery to make in this retirement community, and I get on the elevator, and I'm talking to this guy, uh, who's also in the elevator, and um, he's asking me what I'm wearing around my neck. Now, at the time, when I was in college, I used to wear this uh, Star of David that had a cross in the middle, and he asked me what it meant. <clears throat> and I said, oh, it's a Star of David with a cross, because obviously Jesus was Jewish, and he was the fulfillment of the uh, messianic expectation of the Jewish people. Which, by the way, as far as explanations go, only a theology student would answer a simple cl- a question and make it very complex, which is what I did. And so... So he looks at me kind of funny, and then he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, Jewish or Christian, you haven't decided. God bless you. And, and I'm like, no, I have decided. And, and uh, <laughs> um, you know, it reminds me of the story of Elvis Presley when he was asked why he wore two chains around his neck. And he didn't. You can look, at this up, look this up. He wore a cross on one, and he wore a Star of David on the other. And someone asked him why he, wanted, why he wore both, and he said, I don't want to miss getting into he- heaven on a technicality. Thank you very much. Which, by the way, I think I do a pretty good Elvis impression. Fair, fairly good. And so, anyway, um, not a lot of excitement about that. Hound dogs. And so, uh, <laughs> now, listen, the hope that we have, and Paul mentions this in those verses, the hope that we have of those who have left this life and stepped into eternity is because of the resurrection. The confidence that we have built our lives on in, in biblical teaching 
is because of the resurrection. The experience that we've had in being forgiven by God, all of that is tied to Jesus rising from the dead. And if you lose that, you don't just have a philosophy that you can embrace. If you lose that, then everything else that's attached to it dissolves as well. And now Paul is going to get even more complex here in verse 20. But he says this, he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after the, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, <coughs> second thing I want to tell you, the resurrection first, we said, was my current hope. The second thing is, is that the resurrection is my future reality. Now, Paul gets very theological here and begins to talk about the end of the world. And what he's saying here parallels what is spoken about in Revelation chapter 20 about the millennial kingdom of Jesus and his rule and reign on the earth. Now, once again, Paul is he, he's making an argument here. In the, the last message, we talked about how the idea of the resurrection was rooted in the Old Testament, that it was prophesied in the past. It's not just spoken about in the present. What he's saying now here is that it's also part of God's future plan as well. And that is that every, because of the resurrection of Jesus, every believer in Jesus is going to experience a resurrection at his coming with a brand new body and be part of Jesus's kingdom. Now, I'm going to punt that idea because that is what Paul talks about in the final verses of uh, this chapter, which we're going to look at next time. So if you're very interested in that, be here next week. We'll spend the whole time talking about that. <coughs> but Paul says that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, death <clears throat> is not how things were supposed to be. God did not create the world with death and decay. When sin entered the world, with it, with the punishment of sin, sin brought death. And that's why losing people that we love is so painful. Not just because we're going to miss the person, and that's part of it. And if you're a Christian and they were someone who loved Jesus, then you know that we're going to see them again. But listen, part of it is that death is just not part of God's original design. And we just have a visceral reaction to it because we understand that that was not part of God's original design. And it was a consequence of mankind's rebellion against God. And thankfully, we have a savior who has come into the world who defeated death. And the resurrection is the proof that he was powerful enough to defeat death. And here's the great thing is that there is a day coming when death will no longer be part of our lives. At Jesus's millennial reign, let me tell you what happens in Revelation 20. It says, and then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. But he says that Jesus, now the resurrection of Jesus becomes the first fruits. What does that mean? Now, <clears throat> in an agrarian culture, the, which most of us are not part of, 
In fact, when I say most of us, all of us, right? The first fruit was the beginning of the harvest. And this is when you shouted for joy because that first part of the harvest, it was a sign of all the good things that were coming. Now listen, the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God making everything that's wrong in this world right. When the resurrection happened, it was the beginning of that future, of all that God is going to make right, breaking into our world. This is why whenever there's a tragedy, when there's a shooting, when something horrific happens in our world, uh, people look on and they'll say, well, where was God when that was taking place? And if there's a God of love, why couldn't he have stopped this from happening? Let me tell you what's happening when people say this. They are acknowledging that the world that we live in is broken. They're acknowledging that death is unnatural. And they are longing for the thing that God has hardwired into every human being, eternity. That's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon writes that God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity in our hearts. But here's the rub, is that when people ask where God is when a tragedy strikes, they are longing for a place where these things don't happen. And there is a place where these things don't happen. It's called heaven. This place just isn't it. But see, here's the real rub of it is that when people are asking, well, why wouldn't God do something? What they're saying is, is that they want the benefits of heaven without having to submit themselves to the king of heaven. And that's not the way it works. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, When my daughter, uh, Mia, who's now 14, when she was two, um, she walked into our uh, bedroom And she opened my nightstand, grabbed my wallet, and took $10 out. And so I saw her, and I said, "Uh, what are you doing? And she says, oh, I need this. And I said, for what? And she says, I need money for my party. And I said, what kind of party are you going to have? She says, I'm going to have a tea party for my friends. And I said, oh, great. Can I come to your tea party? And she said, no, it's for my friends. And I said, but you want me to pay for the party and pay for all the supplies, but I can't come? She says, yeah, now you're starting to understand what's, what's happening here. And so, anyway, now, um, first of all, let me show you a picture of the tea party because I took a picture. Um, now, by the way, I just want to note that she didn't buy any supplies and she was skimping on her friends, but she just pocketed the 10 bucks. So that's one thing. But this is what she looked like when she asked me for the 10 bucks. <laughs> now, um, so Mia, <coughs> my wife comes in, Carrie, and she says, uh, what's Mia doing walking around with $10? And I said, well, she's having a tea party. I had to buy supplies for it. And she says, I don't think giving her money is a good idea. And I said, uh, Carrie, uh, in the Bible, when you didn't obey the angel, um, you got killed. And I want to live. So she can have the money with my compliments. And so, now, but you can take that off or nobody's going to pay any attention to me. Um, But this is basically, I'll get that in just a second. I have a Uber Eats order coming in. Um, (coughs) So, now, but this is what we're asking of God. It's like, no, God, I want you to make sure, I want to have the party, I want to make sure nothing happens, but by the way, you're not invited. Now, listen. And this is true of so many things. We want the benefits of the kingdom of God without submitting to the king. 
Now, let me share, this is something that I've been asked about a lot over the last year and a half. Um, I've been asked a bunch about um, racism. I've been asked a bunch about, you know, racial equality and uh, racial reconciliation in our culture and um, why I haven't spoken more into the culture um, about it. So let me me share this with you. I'm going to share you my answer, but let me just, so we're all on the same page, all right? Um, Racism is sin. Um, And as a friend of mine says, racism is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And so, but the problem is, and this is the real issue, is that our culture is seeking solutions that are only available in the kingdom of God. And here's what I know for sure. And once again, if people say, well, you know, what are you going to do about racism? And I say, give your life to Jesus. Because that's the best way I know to prevent and deal with racism, because racism is incompatible with the gospel. And then, and then ultimately, they say, yeah, yeah, but like, what if somebody doesn't want to become a Christian? I mean, how do you deal with it then? To my answer is, I have no idea. Like, I'm not your guy with that. I mean, so you want me to come up with a solution of why people who aren't Christians should act Christian. Yeah, I have no idea. And, and once again, I am a Christian pastor. I view the world through that lens. If you're looking for general advice on the world's woes, I'm not your guy. Do I think it's wrong? Yes. But once again, now, if you want to press me further, let me, um, let me share this. Um, I believe that racial tension is a sign of the end and a sign of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, if you say, well, why is that? Because this is exactly what Jesus talked about. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, <coughs> Jesus said it this way, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That sounds pretty like, yeah, we're dealing with that this week. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. I read something about that this week. And kingdom against kingdom, read something about that this week. And there will be famines, pestilences. I know I read about that. And earthquakes, definitely read about that this week in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, Here's what you got to know. When he says nation will rise against nation, the word nation is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnicity. And listen, I'm sorry to tell you, but racial tension is a sign of the end. And if Jesus said it wasn't going to get better, it's probably not going to get better. But the place where there is one place where it does get better, here. Here in God's house, when a person gives their life to Jesus and embraces the gospel, a transformation takes place from at the cellular level. And that's why, listen, when we've experienced the the one thing that changes everything, Jesus, the resurrection, listen, when I tell you that the resurrection, it's not just a theological reality. The resurrection is the beginning of everything that's wrong in this world being made right. Well, he goes on. Look what he says in verse 29. He says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this 
to your shame. If you pause there. <coughs> if the resurrection is my current hope, it's my, it's my future reality, then the last thing is this. The resurrection is my greater purpose. Now, one of the things that's challenging whenever we're covering a topic like this is that we kind of start, stop, explain, keep going, stop, explain. But remember, the theme here is Paul is answering a question, and that is that there were those in Corinth who said that there was no resurrection. So he describes a few activities that you would do. So he says, if there was no resurrection, why would you be baptized for a dead person? There's people being baptized today after the service. Why are they being baptized? He says, if there's no resurrection, why are you baptized in the name of the son if he didn't rise? It doesn't make sense. And by the way, <coughs> uh, Mormons have taken this verse to mean that you should be baptized in the name of all of your dead relatives so they can go to heaven. And in fact, Mormons have developed, and it's very impressive, by the way, um, they have developed the largest genealogical database in the world. So you can research your family history and uh, be baptized on their behalf. Now, there are so many problems with this, it's hard to even know where to begin. But number one, you never see anyone do this in the Bible, ever. One problem. Number two, no one is baptized by proxy, right? Every, you are baptized because you are deciding to follow Jesus, right? And then three, that's not even what the text is saying. That's why people need to read the Bible in context because lots of crazy things happen when we read one verse out of context and build a doctrine around it. But the other thing that Paul says is that how they were in danger because he was continually preaching the gospel. And he's like, what is the point of my life being in danger if I didn't rise? It doesn't make sense to suffer for something that isn't true. In fact, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul will write uh, to them and, and list, you know, the, the back of his baseball card on all the stuff that he went through. In fact, you see it here. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, and by the way, that means with rocks. I know some people reading the Bible, like Paul got stoned with rocks. So just an FYI, it's with rocks. It was not weed, marijuana, Mary Jane, the devil's lettuce, whatever you want to call it, all right? Not that. <clears throat> but he says, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in peril of the Gentiles, in peril in the city, in peril in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, <coughs> what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. What Paul is showing us in these verses is how to live a life that is heroic. And listen, we live in a culture now where we like to sit and watch superheroes rather than try to be one. But he's showing us how to live a life that's heroic because most people get to the end of their lives and their biggest regret is that they didn't take any risks. So Paul gives us three characteristics of a heroic life. And the first thing that he says is, look, that you need a mission besides you. That your life just can't be to fulfill what it is that you want. And, and we recognize this, that we were created to be part of something. If you've ever watched a football game and at halftime you had to go outside and play, then you understand this principle. 
If you've ever watched a cooking show and after the cooking show, you feel like I, I got to cook something, right? I, I remember going to a movie with my wife years ago and man, I got, you know, the hero defeats the bad guys. And I, I don't know why I was so fired up after watching that movie that I walked out and I saw these, I saw this group of people messing around. I'm like, hey, don't you even think about messing around. And uh, anyway, they all scattered and I'm like, that's right. And, um, and this is in the lobby of the theater. And, uh, and my wife was like, Bob, those are all sixth graders. And, uh, <clears throat> and I'm like, that's not really the point. The point is I could have taken them. And so, but listen, the, the rea- and, and once again, and every time you experience that, there's this revelation that you were created with purpose and that you know to your bones that you were created that not just to watch life happen. And you know this because every one of us knows someone that is completely self-absorbed and self-involved. And you know, isn't it weird that people that are self-absorbed are miserable? People that are only existing for themselves are totally unhappy. Why? Because Jesus taught us something. He taught us that greatness is not found in serving ourselves. It was found in serving others. And you can't live a heroic life until you realize that service is the prerequisite. The second thing is that you need a purpose bigger than you. It's got to be bigger than you. You see, that's why he, he says there, I mean, you know, if the dead don't rise, then like eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. What's the point? But like no one is impressed with someone that has special abilities and just uses it for themselves, right? I mean, how likable is Tony Stark at the beginning of the first Iron Man movie? Like, not, like he's a jerk. And it's not until, and then you get to the end and that same character now snaps his finger and people are crying in the theater. Why? Because he took his power, his position and abilities And he used it for something greater than himself. You see, buying groceries is a chore. And buying groceries is such a thing that people don't like. You can now pay somebody $3 to do it for you. And yet, until you you say, oh, I can't stand doing groceries, until you grab one of those red bags in the lobby and you say, well, I'm not just going to buy groceries for me. I'm going to buy groceries to help a single mom at Sheridan House. And now, somehow a mundane activity, somehow Publix became the spot where heroism took place because we started living and doing something beyond us. You see, this is why Paul says the last thing is that you need a compass beyond you. You see, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Paul says, if the dead don't rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 22. And, and, and it's Isaiah speaking to the people of all the evils that were coming to Jerusalem and the people just didn't care. And they, they just wouldn't stop just only caring about themselves. And that's why Paul says, listen, bad company corrupts good habits, so wake up. And, and, and he's telling us that this was happening in Corinth, that some, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, it was leading them to ungodly and sinful behavior. Listen, because if there's no resurrection, there's no reason to be heroic. I mean, the only reason that we choose forgiveness over revenge is because of the resurrection. The only reason that we choose generosity over greed is because of the resurrection. The only reason that we choose sacrifice over selfishness is because the resurrection is real. That's why Paul says, listen, that's why I fought the beasts at Ephesus. And it's the same reason why you choose to forgive. Because you know, if you, 
run from the beasts that Ephesus, these beasts that want you not to forgive, then you, you end up with regret, which is even greater. But if you engage the beast at Ephesus, you will be spared the beast of bitterness that won't let you go. You see, the only reason that we would do that is because there is a moral compass beyond us which Jesus taught us. And the reason that he taught it to us and it matters is because it's built on the reality of the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God making everything that's wrong in the world right. And guess what? When you come to know Jesus, it's the beginning of God making everything in your life right again. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that promise and hope, that reality that the resurrection was just the beginning. It was the first fruit of all that you're going to do. And so, Lord, we pray, may that be true, not just in the world, but in our world as well, that we might choose these greater things over the things that can enslave us, that can hurt us, that can embitter us. God, do your great work, we pray, that people might see that the resurrection is true simply by looking at our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.